1: The word bust when describing the outcome of a high-profile weather event in forecasting has become more frequently used as of late. It's even referred to at times as the B word. But why is this word thrown around so much when forecasts have become so good? These high-profile events seem to be held at a higher standard. Today, Dr. Kevin Clazel of the University of Oklahoma joins us to talk about this very thing. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Kevin, thank you for joining us on the podcast today.
0: Dr. Shepard, it's great
1: to be with you. Oh, and we know each other well, so f- just definitely call me Marshall. Uh, uh, Kevin <laughs> and I do go way back. Uh, he was actually one of the prof- my professors, actually, at, at Florida State University when I was a student there, although I don't know if we a- actually had any classes together, but uh, he's also been a guest on the television version of Weather Geeks. Let me just set, set the stage with his background. Uh, Kevin's, uh, and I will for- refer to him in the intro as Dr. Clazel, but uh, Kevin is the director of the Oklahoma Climatological Survey. He's also the university meteorologist in the University of Oklahoma's Office of Emergency Preparedness. Uh, he's also an associate professor in the College of Atmospheric and Geographic Sciences, and he has his BS in engineering science from University of Texas at Austin and a master's and PhD in meteorology from Penn State University. He is uh just a a delight, delightful colleague that I've interacted with over the years. And you're going to learn more about him over the course of the podcast. But before we really dive into the topic today, which is severe weather must or bust, tell us a little bit about yourself, Kevin, and how you got into meteorology.
0: Well, Marshall, thanks again for the invitation. Uh, I think my background goes all the way back to little league baseball, because I just could not figure out why the football kids and the soccer kids and everybody else could play when it was raining. Uh, but the baseball kids for some reason had to be rained out it didn't I didn't you know it didn't bother me to play in the mud or anything like that and and I think my love of sports my love of weather from a very early age uh, has sort of been that intersection where now I'm doing operational forecasting for athletic events and uh, for venues and trying to look at venue safety, uh, but knowing the importance of forecasts and observations. And so my um, work at the Oklahoma Climate Survey and with the Oklahoma Mesonet, which is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year, uh, really sort of underpin the ability for us to, to forecast and and ultimately look at the topic that, that's at hand and, you know, what what does accuracy mean what you know <laughs> What are people's expectations when it comes to forecasting from the meteorological community?
1: Yeah, and I, and I want to pick up on something you said there in your answer. I, I know that you recently led an effort by the um, American Meteorological Society to put forth a statement on guidance for outdoor activities and, and how people should respond and plan for weather events. I, I know that I've seen you quoted as saying um, ha- having a plan of hope is no longer uh, uh, acceptable given the where we are with weather forecasting and our abilities. So uh, you mentioned safety and forecasting for outdoor weather events, and that's one of the hats you wear at OU for football games and various other events. As I've surveyed the landscape and seen things like the duck boat accident uh, out in Missouri, a couple, I guess a year or so ago, uh, recent lightning strikes at the U.S. Open golf tournament and people just sort of milling around on the course. Um, what are your thoughts on sort of planning for weather events. I, I go, we're going to go all over the place, so I want to go there first. What are your thoughts on where, where we need to be on that?
0: Sure. I, I think that where we are as a field now and the ability to anticipate weather hazards uh, on much longer timelines, whether that's, you know, a now cast for hours in the afternoon, uh, for example, uh, you know, you mentioned the U.S. Uh, Open. It was the U.S. Women's Open that had the the lightning strike but I'd I'd rather focus on the Masters, right? The Masters, which was an unbelievable event this year, actually for the first time in history, moved the entirety of the final round on day four, on Sunday, uh, to the morning instead of the afternoon so that the entire round could be played before severe weather arrived. Uh, And in fact, as they were preparing for the award ceremony at the end after Tiger Woods won the the tournament, uh, that there was an evacuation. Of course, evacuation had to occur. If that had occurred in the middle of that round, you know we don't know how that event would have played out. We see weather impacting uh, events all the time. And with the knowledge that's available now, we can no longer hope that something bad won't happen. We have too many instances where individuals uh, who went to a festival or to a concert or to a sporting event, these are all fun things, right? These are supposed to be memorable, memorable events for families and such. Uh, when you have a, you know, a father killed at, in Wooddale at a, at a festival you know, right in front of a, of a young child, uh, when you have children that are killed you know, on the field, whether they're playing soccer or whatever the case may be, you have people who are killed uh, going to auto races because of lightning, uh, you know, that's when we have to, as a community, step up and say, you know what, the technology and the talent, the expertise exists. Uh, not to be the office of no, right? And I mean, sometimes that's what people think with meteorology. Well, they're just gonna cancel something. Uh, That's not true. It's not about cancellation. It's about having the event, being the office of yes, but let's have it as safely as possible so that that experience for families and folks that go to those things can be great experiences and memorable experiences on the good side, not the bad side.
1: We're talking with Dr. Kevin Clazel from the University of Oklahoma, who wears several hats, and I kind of want to walk through each of them. You're, you're kind of hearing some of his thoughts uh, as his uh, wearing his hat as university meteorologist for the University of Oklahoma and the OU Office of Emergency Preparedness. Talk us to what what is your day like on a, on a football game there at OU? OU is a big football school, just like University of Georgia, where I, I am and where we both used to be at Florida State. So in that role, what's what's a typical day like for you as we sort of head toward football season?
0: Well, it's, it's not much different than a fan who goes to the game these days. Now, if you think about what a fan does, the fan makes preparations long in advance, right? They make sure that they have their tickets or their season tickets. They make sure that they've gone to the grocery store for all of the items. They're making a list for the steaks and the chicken wings and the, you know, the dips and the chips and the drinks and on and on and on. So there's a, there's a tremendous amount of preparation that a fan goes through to even come to the game, right? The game experience doesn't just start at kickoff. For us, it's the same way. We're making preparations even now uh, for fall football season and how we're going to to operate with respect to weather, how we're going to look at uh, safety across the board, game safety, so interfacing with the athletics department and with emergency management and with our law enforcement community, uh, and then all the way to the week of the game where we have pre-meetings that go on, we have exercises, we do tabletop activities, Uh, So it's almost a year round thing in much the same way that uh, I think a fan would approach football. It's it's year round and all those football magazines are coming on the newsstands right now and everybody's getting all ready for the season. Well, so are we on the on the weather side uh, to make sure that we have the best fan experience possible for the folks that come to our games.
1: Yeah, and it, it's important because there's so many people there at any given time. And if there is a, a an extreme weather event of, of some type, I mean, you have to think about evacuating people, getting them safe, to safety in an open stadium and whatnot. So um, I appreciate the work that you and colleagues uh, in the emergency and management and preparedness realm uh, do for, for the communities there at OU and, and around the country. want to shift to your title as director of the Oklahoma Climatological Survey. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, what that organization is, and also introduce our listeners to the Oklahoma Mesonet, which is arguably one of the if not the best Mesonet program in the country and perhaps the world.
0: Wow, kind words. Thank you, Marshall. Um, We're we're very, very proud of it. Uh, The Oklahoma Climate Survey uh, is the uh, the entity within the state of Oklahoma that is responsible for being the repository for all weather and climate information, uh, but not just storing an archival, but mining that data, for useful information that we can provide to stakeholders, and most of those stakeholders being other state agencies. For example, uh, our Oklahoma Water Resources Board, our our Department of Environmental Quality, Agriculture, Forestry, uh, you name it. Weather has so many implications across all of those entities. And so the ability to work with our state government and our state stakeholders on a daily basis is, is incredibly rewarding, and it helps us as meteorologists and climatologists, you know, formulate a strategy of how we want to measure the atmosphere and what parameters are the most useful. Uh, so, along those lines, 25 years ago, Oklahoma State University and the University of Oklahoma uh, put together a package to instrument the state of Oklahoma to make sure that there's instrumentation in every county and then provide that information back within five minutes to every stakeholder that we have. Uh, and, of course, the stakeholders have grown from the dozens to the hundreds to the thousands to the tens of thousands uh, to the point where we 're taking hundreds of thousands of observations every day, archiving those for research purposes and and the foresight that Governor Henry bellman had twenty five years ago in our state legislature. Of the value of having information like this in Oklahoma, for example, uh, man, just last night. Oh my word, we had storms blast through overnight, severe weather, a, you know, cut a swath of seventy mile an hour winds across the southern half of our state. But the ability to be right on top of those wind gusts every step of the way, to be able to provide arrival times to emergency management jurisdictions with respect to when the storms will get there, how bad they will be. That's invaluable information for many folks to prepare their communities against what we've had this year as an onslaught of severe weather for the last couple of months.
1: And I want to pick up on that. I want to read a a couple of statistics here and then we'll pick up with the conversation. Uh, In the span of 28 days this past May, there were over 550 tornadoes reported across the country. Uh, Several of these were violent EF4 tornadoes. Uh, On average, the country sees about 280 tornadoes a month in May. So it's clear that May was record smashing and kept folks like you in Oklahoma and in the emergency preparedness office uh, on edge. And, and busy. Um, what are your thoughts on this May? Did it feel more active than previous Mays, or did we just get a late start? Just tell us, your, 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 you live right there in the heart of what, what many refer to as Tornado Alley. Uh, so what was your experience like for May?
0: It was busy, uh, but I can't say that it was uh, unusual, right? I, I recall we were actually looking at some of the hours. For example, we spent 692 hours uh, in an advisory, a watch or a warning of some type, flood, severe weather, tornado, etc. Uh, that's an incredible number of hours. But when you compare going back, uh, we spent more hours than that in May of 2015. So we've seen these, these cyclical, you know, years in which we just have active severe weather periods, uh, we tend to have short memories uh, with some of those, but if you look back, and that's again one of the responsibilities of the climate survey, is to make sure that we put what's going on currently you know, in some historical context Uh, And for us in Oklahoma, this was just another one of those Oklahoma springs that we seem to be noted for.
1: Yeah, I know one of the things that often pops up in these discussions when we see these types of activities is were those tornadoes caused by climate change? And we certainly know that climate change is real and a thing, but there's not a good deal of scientific evidence or consensus that links sort of severe tornadic events or what we call severe convective systems to climate change in the attribution study. So I always caution the media and even people that are you know all in on on climate to be a little bit careful about the tornado and hail and severe weather linkages right now because we just know that they aren't as firm as perhaps some of the other linkages out there.
0: Yeah, and we completely agree with you and and you know, you know some of your friends here in Norman like Dr. Harold Brooks at the Severe Storms Lab and and others have been looking at this issue. Uh and this is again back to the mesonet it is why the data are so important. Uh the ability to have research quality data Uh, is ultimately going to be the difference between understanding the atmosphere uh, and not. Because if we're just throwing out, you know, weather... stations with instruments that are not calibrated, then we don't have the detail that we need to understand that atmosphere. And and you know this. I mean, our community is such that when we come to work every morning by this afternoon, we want to understand the atmosphere better than we did this morning and then come back tomorrow and do it over again. Without research quality data, that can't happen. Uh, and with the questions we're being asked, especially in this climate change era of discussion, uh, the data that underpins these, these research studies with respect to climate, with respect to severe weather and climate and that intersection are critically important to us. And so that's one of the things we try to do is, is maintain the integrity of that data going forward. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Kevin Clazel from the University of Oklahoma. And Dr. Clazel is coming to us from the Oklahoma Weather Lab Studios at the University of Oklahoma, so we want to give a big shout-out to anybody involved in making that facility available for this uh, Weather Geeks podcast interview today. So uh, I want to now pivot to this word, bust and you you know it, Kevin. We hear it all of the time. we particularly see it in Twitter in weather Twitter uh, you have an outbreak, you've got people gearing up, messaging on Twitter. you've got chasers out everywhere and there i'm I'm seeing it more and more I'm hearing it, and I actually don't like hearing it right in the midst of the event itself, and I'll, we can perhaps deal with that a little bit later in itself, but first of all. When you hear this term bust, you've got this forecast. Let me just set the stage. So on May 20th, for example, the uh, Storm Prediction Center issued their first high risk for the Southern Plains since 2017. Uh, Multiple particularly dangerous uh, situation tornado watches were issued that night, and everyone was particularly on edge. Uh, Final tally were 35 confirmed tornado reports from that particular event. But as the event was evolving, I started seeing the word bust being thrown around. Do you think that high risk day verified and why or why not?
0: Wow, that's a loaded question. I know it is, Um, that's what we do on litigies. litigies. (laughs) I know it and it's it's really interesting and I think my colleagues are about to hate me for what I'm about to say. Um, That's on us. Uh, And I think it's on the education side, right? Now, one thing I will say about busts, if somebody is thinking a forecast busted, then there are some positives that we can take from that right one is somebody saw a forecast somebody felt like there were impacts associated with that forecast and potentially made a decision based upon those forecasts looking at as if they were reliable information which they are right and so i think that's a positive that we can take when people bust. I think you know sometimes we look at the word bust and we take that personally and then we get defensive I, I think we have to flip that script right i think that if somebody is talking about a forecast bust i think we've got to take uh some measure of satisfaction that hey you saw the forecast and you probably did something about it now it's up to us to go in and work with individuals uh, and we try to do that here on this campus right with athletics with our event space with student organizations to get them to understand the uncertainties involved with the individual forecast and what the possibilities are. And so we did that on that day. So I don't think that there's anybody on our campus uh, that's going to be talking about that day as a bust because we ended up with tornado warnings later that evening, right? So actually in the overnight period. And so for us as individuals on this particular campus – There was no bust about it right we were prepared we were ready we had shelters available uh you know we had campers and and we had to deal with those situations because we have summer camps as well Uh, so we have uh you know now if nothing comes to fruition in that particular situation is the outcome different Yes, but we've hopefully prepared our folks for that possibility as well. That, you know, here's what we think might happen. Here are the possibilities. And I know that, you know, sometimes it's tough to do that in Twitter or in short time snippets or in sound bites to actually explain all the possibilities. Uh, But I think a bust ultimately means that people are paying attention.
1: Yeah, and that's right. And at the end of the day, as we noted, there were 35 confirmed tornado reports. And if if that got people to act and react and do something to... Uh, for their safety. Uh, More power to the message there. Uh, There have have been some that have argued that bust is in the eye of of the beholder also. So if you're in uh, Linwood, Kansas or near Dayton, Ohio, and there were two EF4s that struck, you don't think it was a bust at all. But if you're perhaps someone out looking for just sort of a a rampant outbreak uh, out in the warm sector of the event and that didn't materialize, or if you're chasing, uh, you might consider it a bust from that perspective. So I, I I've heard some argue that it just depends on the perspective of who's saying bust if they're disappointed in their own own regard or, or feelings about the event. Do you agree? Right. I, I
0: think too, I think we may have to have slightly thicker skin about things like that because we inherently understand the uncertainties. I just don't think that right now we do a great job of communicating that to our individual stakeholders. And like you said, I have the beholder, right? That means we have to communicate that somehow to every individual in a different way. Um, I think overall, you know, what I see is people expect me to tell them exactly when the storms are going to arrive. Right. And so overnight, I said our storms would arrive between two and three a.m. And so this morning I'm getting some text messages about, well, you know, they arrived at (laughs) one forty five. So it wasn't two o'clock. And I'm like, yep. But you know what? That meant you paid attention to what I said. And you remembered that you thought they'd get here around two a.m. And I I take great solace. Uh,
1: And, you know, I want to stay there for a second because it it is so frustrating. Uh, I think in some ways, and I want to see if you agree with this or can add to it, but in some ways I think the meteorology community is a victim of its own successes in, in that what I mean by that is we have seen advances in our ability to forecast. I mean, these these outbreaks, uh, for the most part, don't catch anyone off guard. We're not surprised that a hurricane makes landfall uh, three days out from we, when we're still talking about it out over the ocean. But I think because of that, you know, there, there are of the society and the population, because they're not weather attentive or not meteorologists like we are, that don't understand that there are sort of still finite limits to what we can and cannot say, given the uncertainty in the models, given the fact that even though you have this outstanding Oklahoma meso network, we don't have that everywhere. And so the space and time uh, uh, data that we really need to get at these high resolution or very detailed events is just not there to tell someone that there's going to be, you know, a rain shower. Or in the left corner of their yard over the tomato plant, uh, it, it's just people sort of expect more. I think that we can give. So, uh, is that what you see?
0: I agree with you too, and I think this is where the, the Oklahoma Mesonet has really helped us out in terms of the education side here in Oklahoma because we can show folks, you know, maps of these what we'll call spatially coherent uh, things like temperature moisture, et cetera, right? You know that if you're you're driving along and you know that it's southern Oklahoma if it's you know 85 and if it's 80 degrees in central Oklahoma, that there's probably a nice transition, you know, going from one to to the other, 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, right? It's it's just a nice field to analyze. Boy, rainfall on the other hand, that is a much different issue because you can get two inches in one location, across the street get nothing, and then maybe down the street from there get five. And this ability to get so many different patterns of rainfall associated with every individual event, I think it's incumbent upon us to Attempt to communicate, right? How these uncertainties work? We've got these amazing maps that we can use from the mesonet to show these kinds of things, and to let people know that we're likely to be much more accurate on a temperature forecast given the pattern than we might be on a rainfall forecast. But here are our expectations, right? It could be half an inch, it could be an inch and a quarter, and it could be anywhere in between that. And so. uh, The Mesonet gives us the ability in time and space to kind of pinpoint that. But what you're saying is something I absolutely agree with data, right? Data underpins everything and we just don't have enough of it.
1: Now, I mentioned the Linwood, Kansas and Dayton, Ohio tornadoes, EF4s uh, that we saw during that particular outbreak. One of the things that struck me about that particular event, frankly, several events that I've seen this year and in recent years is pretty significant events in terms of tornado and, uh, Also striking very populated areas. And I want to get your thoughts on that. Well, I'll get your thoughts on that in the midst of this question. What is what do you think is happening in our warning system that is keeping the fatalities so low, thankfully, uh, particularly in these highly populated areas that are seeing EF3, EF4 uh, level tornadoes?
0: I am hopeful that that is simply people more in tune with the availability of information. I know here in Oklahoma, for example, the National Weather Service Norman has partnered with the local billboard companies, uh, the local television folks have partnered with local billboards so if you're out and about in the morning you're going to see a billboard that says severe weather possible two o'clock to four o'clock this afternoon or something like that and i think that plants a seed of you know what i need to be home at that time and not out Now, do we still see a lot of people out and about during severe weather? Yes, but I'm hopeful that the tide has started to turn and that information delivery, whether it's via social media or these billboards along highways or or whatever the case may be. I know our broadcasters do a tremendous amount of work here. Uh, The ability to have emergency managers involved in the National Weather Service, you know, sort of mindset through NWS chat and, and tools like that. I think really have fostered a better prepared society so far. Um, do I have any research that proves that? No, uh, but I know just working with our stakeholders here on campus, uh, You know, for example, one thing I stopped doing is I stopped using the word thunderstorm and I start using the word lightning storm. And they go, oh, wait, lightning? That's dangerous. Yes, lightning's dangerous. And so now you have people moving to act because you've used a specific hazard. And so I think directing the hazards to the folks that are available to get the information, more people have access to that information now. And I I hope that we're seeing declines uh, in fatalities for that reason.
1: I want to stay there because you just triggered something that's really interesting. So you, you found from your experience that just the word lightning storm heightens awareness more than thunderstorm.
0: Absolutely. Thunderstorm here in Oklahoma, you sort of hear that term all the time. It goes in one ear and out the other. But people are aware enough to know that, OK, wait, I've heard lightning is a problem that kills, that causes power outages, that causes fires if it hits buildings, et cetera. And I get a lot more response from our own athletics, from campers, from events, et cetera. When I say lightning, lightning storm.
1: You know, it's interesting, and that's interesting because in a class discussion I had one time at my university, you know, I was giving the sort of specific definition of severe weather, and I was talking about that it, you know, it means a tornado or hail of a certain side or gusts winds uh, over a certain mile per hour. And a student asked, well, why don't we also include whether it's going to have lightning or not, because that kills people too. And, you know, why isn't that implicitly included? And I said, well, a thunderstorm implicitly has lightning, but I, I think the student's point was at the same as your point, lightning to me is probably much more likely to be a threat that I'm going to encounter in my life more so than a tornado. But it, she seemed to suggest that we don't sort of upplay, uh, if you will, uh, the lightning threat as much.
0: Right. And I think historically, you know, if you look at the National Weather Service has historically sent out the warnings for what you just said, you know, specific criterion for, for storms based upon wind, hail size, tornado but lightning has never been part of that discussion in terms of warning. And in addition to that, we have events on our campus where we've got inflatables, temporary facilities, stages, porta-potties, you name it. And these could be problematic in 40-mile-an-hour winds. So we're not reliant on you know, something being the book, textbook definition of severe and we will take all of our forecasts and tailor it specifically to whatever event we have going on on our campus. Uh, But I I guarantee you, if I say lightning, there is a lot more of an awareness that uh, we need to be prepared and we need to have our plan ready uh, than if I just mentioned we've got a chance of thunderstorms today.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Dr. Kevin Clazel from the University of Oklahoma, and he's speaking with us from the Oklahoma Weather Lab Studios at the University of Oklahoma. I want to circle back to something that I set up right before the last break. I, I mentioned uh, and that there have been several tornadoes this year that seem to have Uh, really affected highly populated areas. When we think about Jefferson City, uh, Missouri, I believe, and Dayton, Ohio, and Kansas City, Missouri, there's this myth that has been propagating out there for many years. I'm sure you've heard it, that tornadoes don't hit cities. Uh, First of all, can you talk about that, whether that myth is actually real or a myth? I just established that it was a myth, so maybe I kind of biased the conversation here. But um, talk to us about this notion that people have that tornadoes don't hit big cities and why they are why that's not the case
0: yeah that may be a regional myth because in oklahoma it's the inverse right in oklahoma people think tornadoes only hit more oklahoma Uh, yeah
1: more 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 has been hit several times right
0: right so it just kind of depends on on where you are in the country and what your experience with tornadoes are of course tornadoes are typically very small they're discreet uh and they can occur anywhere uh and because they are so small in the grand scheme of things uh, we 're at the mercy of what they hit right I know that if if you have a vulnerable mobile home community like we had in Oklahoma in an urban area hit, we had fatalities in in that situation simply because of the vulnerability of the housing. If that tornado had hit, you know, maybe a mile north of that location or a mile south of that location, then we don't have fatalities in that situation. So uh, with tornadoes, it's so at the mercy of what it hits, I think, sometimes as well.
1: Yeah, and I think people like uh, Walker Ashley and and Stephen Strader and other have talked about some of the vulnerability issues that you just mentioned. We here in the south where we are, which we have our own little sort of max region of tornadic activity uh, that the studies are starting to show. uh, We do have some housing and populations that tend to be particularly vulnerable to severe weather uh, as well and may actually have higher levels of fatality even for a lesser tornado event because of some of those vulnerabilities. But, you know, Walker also talks about that you know one of the things that's happening is that you're seeing the expa- what he calls the expanding bullseye. In that you're right, there are these discrete tornadoes that are very small, so just have had historically low chances of hitting sort of central business districts. But as you noted, places like Moore, Oklahoma, and others have had repeated uh, major hits from tornadoes, and we're we're seeing sort of the the sort of expansion of sort of suburban areas in in our, where you live, where I live, and so there's just more of a. Chance as that bullseye expands of things that have value and lives being affected, uh, being hit by tornadoes. What are, your, what are your thoughts overall on where we are? Uh, you mentioned things like the billboards there where you live in Tornado Alley and the messaging. What are your thoughts about just overall sort of social science of warning for severe weather? I mean, I, 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 you work with a lot of people out there like uh, Kim Kaloka and others that think about these issues. Um, like the, the the warning categories, for example, that SPC uses, this notion that we might, there are some people think we can actually give too much lead time on to where I think we're around 15 minutes now. Some people worry that if we start giving an hour, that's too much time. What are your thoughts on some of those types of, th- of
0: statements? I think those are entirely individual because there are certain sectors and it might be hospitals, assisted living centers, nursing homes, et cetera that would absolutely be overjoyed at 30, 40 minutes, lead time, warning, et cetera. But then there are going to be other folks in the community where that's not a good thing, right? Because sometimes they'll, well, let's take that opportunity to run by the grocery store real quick or, or something like that. And so I think it depends on the individual. And I think that's where some of the brilliant minds that we've got out here, Kim and, and others, have. Have really been working hard and trying to figure out and of course what we're learning it's not one-size-fits-all um, and that makes for a significant challenge for either the broadcast meteorological community or the National Weather Service is how do you craft different messages for different populations Um, And I know everybody does the absolute best that they can, you know, with webinars and with emails and, you know, things like that that go out to various stakeholders. But I think that's a problem we're going to be working on for a long time because no two people on the receiving end of the information are going to react the same way.
1: And I think that is the next frontier in, in, in the weather enterprise to some degree. As good as our dual polarization radars and satellites and models are becoming, uh, just simple understanding of what people hear and how they respond and what color they reacted to the most. Just even your example of how they react very different differently to lightning storm versus thunderstorm. I think that's uh, useful information. Uh, I, I want to kind of get your thoughts because, again, in Oklahoma, I think this is a no-brainer. I think people get watch. Versus one warning, but I I have found that in other parts of the country, people really confuse those two. Do do you find that to be the case, or is it, do you think that's just kind of a regional thing as well? watch versus yes.
0: morning they they confuse them and they do here in Oklahoma right here in the heart of tornado alley uh one of the exercises I will do with with students and if they're coming on tours of our national weather center facility or something like that even if they're there as, as long as they're of driving age right uh the question I will typically ask is you know if if a law enforcement officer gives you a warning is that a good thing or a bad thing and they're like, well, shoot, that's a good thing because I didn't get a ticket. And so then you can sort of go from there and say, okay, so, so what's the difference between a, a watch and a warning? And usually those same folks will say, well, if there's a warning, then something could happen. But if it's a watch, watch out. And it's like, okay, that's backwards, right? And so it sort of calls into question some of the verbiage that we use. Uh, And I'll extend this to even the PDS that we talked about earlier, right? The particularly dangerous situation. I mean, I was always taught that if you were in a tornado watch, that that's a particularly dangerous situation (laughs) because you've got a possibility of having tornadoes. And any tornado is particularly dangerous. And so I don't know why we feel the need sort of to, I realize they're looking for some enhanced language to uh, to go forward. But sometimes we get this notion even here, oh, well, it's just a tornado watch. Yes. Oh, it's a PDS watch. So now we have to do something different. And, and I have to be on the education side of that is saying, no, we are going to handle this tornado watch the same way, regardless of what you know, is labeled on it because any tornado to our campus is is, is going to be a dangerous situation. Yeah. And so trying to work through some of the technology that we have created, I think sometimes we've made it more difficult on ourselves in trying to Enhance sort of the the awareness. Sometimes I think we've we've kind of been our own worst enemy.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like saying, "Oh, it's just a copperhead; it's not a black mamba." When you get bitten, they're they're, well, they're both pretty dangerous, right? Yes,
0: you know, exactly. One, well, one, well, that's one, a small one, rattlesnake one. instead of a big a one, big right? One, no, yes.
1: <laughs> exactly. And so, no, I, I I I appreciate that you said that because I, I have noticed that challenge as well. It's sort of the the degrees of danger there when. Frankly, all tornadoes are dangerous even little water spouts can be particularly dangerous as well um, if you get too close to them. Uh, I want to use this last five minutes or so to just pick your brain. I mean, I just think you're a valued uh, member of the weather enterprise and and someone that uh, just has a lot of thoughts on things so as in this last five minutes what what are what are some of the things that just keep you up at night? As you survey the landscape of the weather enterprise, where we're going and forecasting ability, warnings, communication, messaging, I mean, what are just some of the key things that, I mean, you've got a platform of people listening to this all over the country and perhaps even all over the world. What what, what bothers or keeps Kevin Clazel up about the weather enterprise?
0: I, I think what bothers me is ultimately the earth wins, uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, whether you're dealing with volcanoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, you know, other wind storms, heat, drought, et cetera, that this planet provides a tremendous number of hazards. And just kind of going around, I see that we've taken steps in some areas to prepare ourselves against those hazards. For example, the seatbelt issue, right, with vehicles everybody's got seatbelts, you're mandated to wear seatbelts. And so you're mitigating against a risk that you don't know is going to happen, right? There may be some folks out there listening that have never been in an auto accident. But if they are, the seatbelt could save their life. I think from a standpoint of natural phenomena, we need to do the same thing, right? We do not build our homes well. We build them in vulnerable places. We put them on coastlines. We have homes out in here in the plains that don't have, you know, tornado safe spaces to go to. And we have to figure out a way to build our environment against the hazards that we will all ultimately face. Um, and until then, we're still going to have large numbers of fatalities in in these natural disasters. And so I think more of, a, of an education, I think, I mean, we don't even really see, for example, uh, second grade, fourth grade, eighth grade, weather's in the curriculum. But we talk about temperature and we talk about rainfall. And I realize those things are important. I think we need to begin transitioning our geoscience education, particularly at early grades, to what to do in disasters, right? What are the hazards and what are the things you can do about them? Rather than being focused so much on content with respect to curriculum and checking a box, let's provide some relevance and some value uh, and I think until we do that across our education landscape, I think we're, we're still not going to make too much progress.
1: I, I so agree with you there. I mean, I, you know, I, as, as someone that has young kids that have gone through the education system recently, uh, I'm excited that weather is in the curriculum at, at, at various grades. But it, you're right. It's it's cold front warm front, the three types of clouds, which are important, but you're right. I think there can be a bit more of a, an applied focus. And, and I have to, to to be fair. I have reviewed some recent curricula and standards that are trying to integrate that in more. But I think we have a long way to go with that. And by the way, uh, Dr. Clazel's is not someone that uh, is speaking casually on sort of geoscience education. Uh, one of my first experiences and exposures with Dr. Clazel at Florida State University uh, I believe you were director of the was it the Florida Explorers program or something like that. That was a co-director America, with
0: Dr. Rusher. With
1: Paul Rusher. Shout out to Dr. Rusher out there in in Oregon. And this was an amazing program that was trying to do just that get get geoscience or meteorological and climate information to a broader segment. So I, I it's I, I see you're still thinking about those things.
0: I think I will always be thinking about those things. And and what that says is that over a a multi-decade career that uh, I need to work a little bit harder right? because we still need to make a lot more progress in that in that area.
1: Well, I think we're going to have to draw to a close here. But before we do, Kevin, where can people find you in social media if they've really enjoyed what they've heard from you today and just want to kind of follow you?
0: Sure. Uh, I am Texas Embassy on Twitter. And of course, uh, that goes all the way back to my University of Texas Longhorn heritage and being that Longhorn on campus here at the University of Oklahoma for 20 years. So Texas Embassy on Twitter. Uh, You can also find me just by searching on my name on Facebook. Uh, So and I'm happy to, to interact with anybody who might have questions or questions on education, curriculum, event safety. Uh, The new 4.04A rule in the Major League Baseball rulebook, which looks to allow teams to create severe weather plans. Uh, That's some progress in that regard. So uh, any and all, I'm I'm happy to hear from you.
1: And that's where we have to end it today. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Thank you for joining us, Kevin
0: absolutely my pleasure
1: and continue to join us on the uh, weather geeks podcast we really appreciate you uh, listening and we hope you'll you know, spread the word and subscribe on on your favorite podcast format and join us again next time on the weather geeks podcast